This is Pastor Mike Fabares with Focal Point Ministries. I trust that the following recorded sermon will be a benefit and a challenge to your walk with Christ. For more information about Focal Point Ministries, log on to focalpointradio.org or call us toll-free at 888-320-5885. We have chosen a very ambitious and aggressive topic to study because God, though he is a vocabulary word that is very common, he is uh, unlike anything or anyone you have ever known. He is unique. The God who has revealed himself in scripture to us, the one who is imperfectly perceived by his creatures, is a self-existent, eternal, sovereign triunity who will forever exist as a perfect fellowship with himself without defect forever. As a matter of fact, God is a being that if you were to perceive him in your sinful state or anyone that you know were to be in his presence in a mortal form, they would, uh, they would cease to exist. First Timothy 6.16 says, he dwells in unapproachable light that uh, no one has seen or can see. He is completely other. He is totally transcendent. He is completely different than anything that we have ever experienced. Isaiah had a brief encounter of a vision of God for just a few moments and left with scorched lips and the words holy, holy, holy ringing in his ears, the words that mean unique, different, not like us. It is a topic that is unlike any other that we could discuss. It's our plan to dive into various disciplines of theology on Thursday nights here at Compass, and uh, it's one thing to unravel God's revelation about the end times or about the church or about the plan that he has for our lives, but it's a completely different thing to study who he is. So it's with um, trepidation that I approach this study, and I hope it's received by you differently than anything else that we might teach on because God is um, not at all like us and we should, I trust, it's my prayer, stand in awe of him the more we discover who he is, the more we jettison the views of God that aren't accurate and aren't real because all of us have them. We worship a God that probably isn't the God who exists and we need to constantly refine our view of who he is. We need to consider the varied ways that reality is perceived. The God that we know, and I trust you're on the same page as I am, is a God that the world, according to Scripture, has chosen to suppress the truth of in their unrighteousness. And they've fallen into a variety of buckets and camps. And we need to think that through as it relates to our study of God. So let's begin. Letter A, if you found your worksheet there, it was passed out. We're back to our old charts again. Isn't that good? (laughs) If you're new to Compass Night, I hear we have some rookies here. This is not Sunday morning. You'll quickly discover it's a whole different experience. So 
Letter A, we need to consider life's fundamental questions. That is what determines people's interpretation of reality. Life's fundamental questions. We all as sentient beings who can self-reflect and interpret things around us have to have a grid by which to interpret those things and we have to understand that a, a belief, an assumption, an embracing of the truth of God changes everything about that. So, and, and this isn't exhaustive, but at least to prime the pump of our minds, everyone's got to at some point ask the question, well, why are we here, right? Who are we? Where'd we come from? I mean, you know, we, we have the ability, unlike rocks and trees, to think about ourselves and We've got to be able to have some answer to that because that will determine so much about everything in the world and how we interpret it. We've got to ask ourselves questions like, who's in charge? I mean, we can understand that theism or non-theism or atheism is going to, uh, you know, change the answer to that question and therefore the values and way that I live. What's the point of life? I mean, commercials have one answer, your kid's professors at the university have another answer your next door neighbor has an answer and you need to be able to answer that question what's life's problem everybody thinks we have one everyone even the happy-go-lucky Pollyanna friend of yours deals and grapples with problems and she defines them in a particular way how do we solve our problems how do we solve the problem the big problems all of these things make a world of difference if we start to inject a concept of God that changes everything and as we'll see in our chart here there are several ways that we can understand that but it's important for us to realize everyone has to grapple with this we call this and I think it's helpful just at least in our reading and since it's so vogue these days uh, we call it a worldview Thus, the man on your worksheet with his glasses. Everybody has to put on a grid, a matrix, a, a lens through which they look at the world and interpret the world. What should I do with my life? How should I live? How do I define my problems? What is the problem? What do I do with solving those problems? Who do I answer to? Do I care about anything beyond myself or my family or my country? A worldview. If you want to define a worldview, and there's lots of definitions out there, but this might be helpful. This is mine. A worldview is a, a set of foundational beliefs. And depending on who you read, you can define these in your logic as presuppositions, things that I presume, things that I start with. And I say, I believe these things. Therefore, now I can go and reason through the issues of life. They're a set of foundational beliefs and they obviously are going to, here's the interpretive part, determine how I figure reality, how I interpret reality. What do I make of things? How do I file them? And everyone, therefore, has a worldview. Read an article about, you know, uh, worldviews and, and, and uh, why you should get one. <laughs> and I thought to myself, that's a silly title because everybody has one. It uh, may not be written, it may not be spelled out, you may not have a group that agrees with you that you meet with to affirm it, but everybody has a way to look at the world. And if you were to peel back and examine what that is, it's going to relate to the foundational questions of life. 
And we could spend a whole semester looking at that concept, but this is helpful as we begin our study of of theism in general. Now, a biblical worldview, we could again spend an entire course, I suppose, talking about a biblical worldview. But if you are going to start at the basics of what we come to the world with as biblical thinking people, and that may seem uh, like pepetitio principi or some kind of circular reasoning, but we'll get to that later. But the point is, if I'm going to uh, look at the world through the grid of biblical truth, okay, what are my basic suppositions about life? Well, my basic belief and understanding, if I'm a biblical thinker, is there is a God. And by God, if you want to put next to that, we're defining that as an eternal self-existing, perfect being. And though there may be debate among all kinds of groups as to a definition of God, that's a decent one. A self-existing, eternal, perfect being. Someone who doesn't need anything else, something that didn't need a cause, something that pre-exists all things, someone who is content in himself. We believe that there's a God. And secondly, we believe that that God has, has spoken. He has revealed himself. To think biblically, to have a biblical worldview, is to realize that God has, has taken the, the time and the effort to give the people that he's made information about himself. That we're not left without a witness as to who God is. Even those two, and those are the two fundamental building blocks of any biblical worldview, you can see where that is going to pretty much show some connection to the decisions and interpretations I make on the world for 80% of the things that I encounter. There is a God, and he has spoken. He's revealed himself. Most religious people in the world believe that, and uh, they're trying to argue about where or how has he revealed himself. Even the uh, secularized spirituality of American culture, they believe this. There is a God, and he's, he's talking. He's, he's communicating. Um, but a world, Christian worldview begins at least with those two basics. Continuing on, though, if we have a biblical worldview, the main thing that God wants to communicate after the fact that he is there and he's in charge is that you guys have a problem. I mean, we don't, it only takes us two chapters of discussion about foundational issues of who's in charge to get to the fact that, uh, you know, you guys are messed up. There is a problem. You're not perfect. There's an issue of of distance and chasm between perfection and who you are. The problem, the problem of overarching proportions in Scripture is sin. That's the problem. Falling short of the standard, or as Paul puts it, the glory of God. Obviously central to a biblical worldview, if we are not uh, speaking of a Jewish worldview, I'm talking about Old and New Testament, the plan of God to fix the problem is the coming of Christ, the incarnation of God himself, that God has put on flesh. It is a view of, of a Christian to see the world and interpret the world as the fact that there is a solution to the problem. They're not fatalists. They're somewhat optimistic in that they say there is provision for fixing the problem of man. Number five, the answer for us and the instructive or directive to us is that we've got to repent. 
The biblical worldview is there is a God. He's revealed himself. He's told us we have a problem. He came to fix the problem. And he tells us that if we would turn from our sin, and implicit in repentance, by the way, and that's why it often shows up by itself as the response to the gospel, implicit in the word repentance is coming to embrace God's solution. We call that in the New Testament gospel, faith in Christ. But we turn from sin and we embrace his solution. And the urgency of that is bound up in the last component of the fundamental Christian worldview, and that is that if you don't, you're in trouble. God will then bring upon those who are unrepentant the penalty of their sin. I mean, if you're going to boil down the Christian worldview, I mean, these are the basic elements. And you don't need a book to do this. You don't have to look this up. This is not going to be found in some apologetics or philosophy course at Biola or something. These are just, all you do is sit down and say, what is, the, what is the view that the Bible leaves Christians with? Well, there's a God. He's revealed himself. There's a problem. He came to fix it. Uh, you got to get right with God by repenting. And uh, if you don't, you're in trouble eternally. That's the Christian worldview, at least in a nutshell. Well, of course, that's not <clears throat> how the world views things by and large. And I've listed eight buckets, and we could go on, I suppose, ad nauseum about variations on this. But I put a chart together just because I know how much Thursdays require charts. And I even made this one rather pretty. Two categories. Let's just deal with the top side of this. Fill this in if you would. All the first four worldviews, let's show that whatever the view of the world is and how reality is interpreted, the first four on this list, uh, they don't really include, in any practical sense, God. God is not a part of it, therefore he hasn't spoken, and we don't know what the problem is based on God's dealings, and there is no solution because there is no problem, and there's no call to fix the problem for you, and there's no consequence if you don't. Okay? So this is about as unchristian a worldview as you can get. Now, there are those that make absolute claims about there not being a God. So let's just put the first two in their own bucket. The absolute denial of God. Now, you all know what we call that philosophical position. What do we call it? Atheism. Okay? Let's just put that at the top of the list. Atheism is a worldview. It is not a popular worldview. It is not a predominant worldview. Even the pro-atheist websites, um, though they want to say, and I read one recently that said, uh, actually it was today, that said, well, admitting that you're an atheist on a poll or a survey is like telling the surveyor that you're a homosexual. So everybody's really a shame to do so. Therefore, we don't have accurate records of how many atheists we have. And I'm thinking, what planet do you live on? Uh, our world, do you understand that more than ever in our, in our society, in, in the history of the world, we are now consuming more books from academia about atheism than ever before. Take a look at the last year of bestsellers on the New York bestseller list and watch how many of those have to do with trying to promote atheism. I mean, it's, 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 it's unlike anything ever before. It's not that there hasn't been forever an option for people to say, I don't believe in God. But today it is as popular and as vogue and as cool 
as, uh, as ever before. And I'll prove that to you with some more stats here in a second. Now, of course, the biblical worldview, everything on the right column uh, is now going to uh, address the biblical worldview's response to those positions. And let's start with this, Psalm 14, verses 1 and 2. And I don't know why I'm being so nice to you. We will look at several passages, but I'll put this one on the overhead for you, okay? Psalm 14, 1 and 2. The basic biblical worldview response to the claim that there is no God is that that is a foolish claim in light of everything that the Bible teaches about the evidence of God being real, that there is so much in favor in our daily experience. As a matter of fact, as I'll say later, there is a a sense, an intuitive sense, not of the accuracy of who God is, but an intuitive sense that there is a God, that to deny that is to really work hard at folly. That would be the biblical position on this. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They're corrupt. Their deeds are vile. That's why they do it. It's always a spiritual motivation, a moral motivation, according to scripture. There's no one that does good. The Lord looks at heaven. This is a comical, sarcastic verse now on the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, any who seek after God. Secondly, there is the view that there is no God absolutely. Now, this is not a popular view. It's not a majority view. As a matter of fact, in America, it is somewhere around 10%. But there is another view that is much more popular that is an absolute view of the absence of God, not theoretically, but, but in, a, in a real, tangible, sentient way. There is no sense of God in the world. We call this naturalism. Naturalism. And the way they put this, and you can see where this is secondary, is that there is no supernatural. In other words, there is no intervention of God in anything, and that is an absolute claim. God is a God, if he does exist, which is a non-issue for the naturalist, he has no involvement in this world. And we don't even want to talk about God because God is in a realm of unempirical, unrepeatable, unscientific uh, endeavor. So it's not an issue. Naturalists may or may not go to Sunday school on the weekend, but they would all agree that there is no involvement of God in the reality that we see. Therefore, there's no book called the Bible where God has spoken. There's no miraculous events. There's no miraculous creation. Naturalists, of course, have to be by philosophical constraint. They have to be evolutionists. Jot this reference down, if you would. Colossians chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. Antithetical to the view of naturalism, the worldview of naturalism, the Bible says things like this. This is the biblical worldview. For, it, for by him, that is by Christ, all things were created. Things in heaven, things on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or powers, rulers or authorities, all things were created by him. And that statement right there speaks of something supernatural. God creates, and they were created for him. He is the point. He's the purpose. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things. Now, this is an important biblical phrase. And in him, all things hold together. God is keeping everything together. He's actively involved. In response to the naturalistic worldview, the Bible says, well, that's 
certainly antithetical to anything biblical. Okay, we have an absolute claim of God's absence. Then there is a practical claim of God's absence. It's a way to look at the world and never look for God, but it's one that may allow in their philosophy uh, God, but he's not involved in any practical sense. For instance, and this is a much more popular category, although still in a minority, a group, a worldview that we call agnosticism, to be agnostic. Uh, all these, well, at least the first and third um, uh, Greek derivatives, obviously, theos means God, the uh, A in front of it, the, the, the negation, no God, atheism. Agnostic, gnosis is the Greek word for knowledge, right? Agnostic, no knowledge. There, we have no knowledge of God. God is unknown. If there is a God, which we're not saying there's not, because we don't have absolute knowledge, the agnostic would say, but we don't know him. He hasn't uh, shown up. Uh, we can't see him. So for all intents and purposes, you then look at the world the same way the atheist does. Practically, I don't look for God. I don't look for marks of God. I don't look for communication from God because I'm of the mindset that God hasn't revealed himself. And if there is a God at all, God is unknown. Romans chapter 1 that we've recently studied on Sunday mornings speaks clearly to that. Romans chapter 1 verse 18 through 20. The wrath of God has been revealed from heaven, the Bible says, against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who, here's the presumption, suppress the truth by their wickedness. Why do they have to suppress it? Because it's there. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. And the assumption that God has not made himself knowable is obviously antithetical to a biblical theistic worldview. Fourthly, there is an old, but perhaps for modern churchgoers, a much more palatable view, worldview, a way to interpret the world, which is still practical absence of God, and that we call deism. Deism. Many of our country's founders were deists. We can write about the Almighty, we can write about the providence of God, but in all practical purposes, he's not intervening. And another way to put that is that God has not revealed himself. He is not active. He's not involved. It's much like an agnostic, only these are folks that say there is a God. And there are plenty of people that probably you intersect with and inter interface with in your life that would say, I, I believe in God. There is a God. Uh, but I just don't think he's involved in the everyday matters of life. Uh, deism. Let's put this passage down. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. There have been no interventions of God, no communiques from God. We figure this out intuitively. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 says, In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he's appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. While some deists may believe that there was a character named Christ, uh, most of them are clear to say this is not God. He has not broken into time and space. 
He is not speaking uh, in some kind of infallible way for God and certainly didn't rise from the dead. Deists are naturalists in practice. They are anti-supernatural. And a lot of folks, as we see, moving from the spectrum of what is uh, seemingly disdained by Christians to a more palatable view, which is, I, I can affirm that there's a God, but I don't believe in any intervention, any revelation. There's no firm word from God. The Bible is not important in the mind of a deist. Secondly, there is a whole entire category that sees reality with God. There is a God. And I'll, I'll look through the lens of there being a God. I am a deist. I'm sorry, I'm a theist. I believe there's a God, but there's several ways we can understand that and several ways that people have in the past. And some of these, I think, are uh, probably 50 years ago. Most churches would have seen these as ancient concepts, but they're very relevant today. Let's jot this down. There are at least two that believe that God is a God who is present in all things. And we'll see how we break this into two camps. The first worldview is pantheism. Pantheism, I remember studying pantheism in Bible school and then on in seminary, and we always looked historically at that until my latter years of education when we started to recognize that uh, pantheism had made its resurgence in, in modern culture as people began to believe that uh, God is everything, including you. You are God. The God within you, the God of the world, the God of the planet, the God of the... I mean, God is in everything. God is everything. Everything is God and God is everything. If I had room on the chart, that's what I would have written for you. God is in everything and God is everything. Everything is God and God is everything. That is pantheism and it is certainly alive and well and though we don't much call it this anymore in the new age philosophies of our day, where everything finds its place in the large working of God and everything is a part of God. Passages like Isaiah chapter 40, verse 22, rule that out as any kind of possibility. Isaiah 40, 22 says that God sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. God is separate from the earth. He is different. He's not the earth. He may intervene in the earth. He may hold the earth together, but he is not. And its people are different and they're very small in this very diminutive picture of mankind. They're like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy. They are separate than he is. He spreads them out like a tent for those grasshoppers to live in. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 22 rules out any idea of looking at the world as pantheistic. There is another view, largely popular. We run into it early on in our Bibles in Egypt, a worldview called polytheism, polytheism. Though present in America, you have to look in other cultures primarily to find large contingents of society that believe in polytheism. As, as we'll see, there's a much more convenient way for Americans to basically do the same thing, but polytheism. Polytheism, poly, obviously many, theism, theos, God, many gods, and one way to look at this is that everything has its God. You remember the 12 plagues Moses inflicts uh, as the agent of God's wrath on Egypt. All of those, if you've studied those in any depth, if you know something about the historical backdrop of Egypt, all of those speak to the gods 
that the Egyptians believed in. Uh, everything has its God. We don't need to spend any time on this. Obviously, one of the main messages of the Bible is that there is only one God. Triune, though he is, a perfect divine fellowship, he is not uh, one of several gods in the universe. Isaiah 44, verses 6 and 7, this is what the Lord says, Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty, I am the first, I am the last, apart from me there is no God. Who then is like me? Let him proclaim it, let him declare it, let him lay out before me what has happened since I established my ancient people and what is yet to come. Yeah, that'd be a good idea. He said, yes, let him foretell what is to come. Isaiah 44, verses 6 and 7, there's no room for polytheism as a worldview. Now, reality as interpreted with God in all things and secondly, in any form. And this is much more popular and this certainly exists within the pews of Compass Bible Church if we had any pews. (laughs) The nice Bertolini manufactured chairs of Compass Bible Church. You can find these two views in every church in America. Number seven, let's call this one relativism. Relativism is a very polite philosophical worldview that allows me to be loved and liked and never cause any wars with you because what I can say is whatever your view of God is, it's accurate because truth is relative. And if you want to claim that God is this or that, that's fine for you. And how often do we hear this, even in the parking lots of churches? Well, that's fine for you. And that's great for you. We might put it in different forms in the neighborhood. Your God, well, that's your God and that's good for you. And your truth is true for you. Just not true for me. I got my own truth. I mean, God is like ice cream. You got your favorite, I've got mine. I mean, there is no right and wrong here. And truth has been relegated to a position of personal preference. And we could preach on that, and we have. But if you want a passage to put down next to this as it relates to the worldview of relativism, be sure and remember this scary passage, as I've often said, the most frightening passage in all of Scripture, Matthew chapter 7, when all truth claims are going to be tested. When God says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father. How would I know the will of your Father? Well, we must have a God who has spoken, and he expects us to rightly understand what he's communicated. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, drive out demons, perform many miracles? I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Clearly in the Bible, you cannot hold different truths about who God is, the will of God, even though you call him the same name, because your truth claims will be tested. And therefore, it behooves us and is imperative upon people to make sure that their truth about God is true truth And we preached on that. We should put a sermon next to that if you wanted to look that up. Um, We did a message on truth in the uh, Da Vinci Code series. I don't usually preach on movies and books, but that was such a a mess. Were you here for that? You can look that up on FPR, focal point, um, radio.org. Do you remember that message? We talked about truth and true truth. Remember that? No, nobody remembers that. I remember that. That was a painful sermon. There's one more form, and unfortunately, this, I would say, is the predominant form of evangelical Christianity today, and that is a God in any form that finds its moniker as humanism. (laughs) I know you said, no, wait a minute, humanism, shouldn't that be up in the top category? No, 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 no. Humanism, matter of fact, look it up in any encyclopedia. 
Humanism as a worldview does not deny the existence of God. It just understands God as subservient to you. Now, you can have him or you can not have him. Humanism simply claims that my worldview is that we are the center. And individualistic humanism, which is so prominent in America, is that you as an individual need to see God through the lens of yourself. What is God to you? And not just an issue of your truth and my truth, but let's all agree on what kind of God is here to to serve us. We dealt with this. We were talking about this in a couple meetings this week. Uh, but turn to, uh, turn to Revelation, a little unplanned excursion here. Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14. <laughs> Our staff's going to be tired of me reading this. I've read this three times, I think, this week now. But I'll just give you, and I'm not throwing an entire movement under the bus. I know you're going to think I am, and I'm not, and I've already gone through all the criticism of this, so bring it on. I don't care. Okay? But I want you to read something from Revelation chapter 14, and then let me compare it to something that is right in the center of mainstream evangelical Christianity. Here it comes. Drop down to verse number 6. I understand the book of Revelation. We're in the middle of the tribulational period. We've already said prophesy again. We're describing the preparation of the nation of Israel for Messiah. I know we're in a time that we're not now living in that's described here. But the words will help us understand it is fully applicable to us. Revelation chapter 14, verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying in midair and he had, now underline this word here, the eternal gospel. Does that mean that it's applicable now? (laughs) Yeah, because it's eternal Here's the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, every tribe, every language, every people. And he said in a loud voice, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. (laughs) You laugh. That is the appeal of the 21st century gospel. I'm not throwing a whole movement under the bus. But I am saying that is a wrong-headed approach. That is a humanistic worldview that fits Christianity into it. Let's read what it really says. I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, every tribe, every language, every people. And he said in a loud voice, now see if this doesn't grate against the modern evangelicalism that's pandered at the beginning of Christians' lives, church-going people's lives from Sunday school from preschool in, in churches all the way to their eulogies at their funerals. This is a little different. Fear God and give him glory. Because the hour of his judgment has come, and in our case, it's coming. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Now, I understand this is right on the cusp of him bringing that judgment. But from our perspective, isn't that the appeal of the gospel? Judgment is coming. That's why I, for the ministries that I lead, have tried to replace all this bridge evangelism where, hey, come on over over here. It's really cool. The water's good over here. Come be on God's side to the umbrella. Are you familiar with the umbrella presentation? Go to the umbrella. What do we call it? The the umbrella. Sharetheumbrella.org. There you go. There's an urgency to the gospel. The judgment of God is coming. Fear God and give him glory. The God who, by the way, is the center of all things. He made the heavens, made the earth, made the sea, made everything in him. That's 
theocentric Christianity. That's a big, big, big difference than what you'll get as the kind of the the common fare in church, in Christian bookstores, in contemporary Christian music. Don't get me started. Reality interpreted with God, yes. But five, six, seven, and eight are all still not the God of the Bible. Important for us to recognize that our goal is different. Now, again, we're going to start just tonight. That was all introduction. How was that? <laughs> Back of the page. Oh, the passage. Thank you. Oh, there are so many. Second Corinthians 5.15. We read another one, which you might have already jotted in the box, but save room for Second Corinthians 5.15. You know this one, right? He died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Now, again, you can see why that's not on the tracks because that one doesn't play as well. Right? Pastor, I got a gospel track that says, hey, don't live for yourself anymore. Live for God. The invisible God that you can't see. Do what he wants instead of what you want. That doesn't win as many converts, but it will win real converts, by the way. All right. We want to figure out biblical theism through, through, we want to see reality, perceptible reality, what we can experience. We need to interpret that through the lens of biblical theism, which is God-centered He's the king, he's the boss, he's in charge. We got a problem, he came to fix it. We got to repent. If we don't repent, we're in trouble. Now, this is not how most theology textbooks begin, not all of them, but many, with the proofs of God. Instead, I want to look at reality through the lens of biblical theism, and that's inverted, that's a little different. And it's not that I, well, well, I won't go down that road. Let's just start, letter A. (laughs) I want to understand reality through the lens of biblical theism. And this fits. It's an observation about God being the cause who explains the effect. The God who is the cause that explains the effect. Because everyone's got to struggle with the effect. And the effect, and by that I mean, is what we're dealing with here in, in, in the world. We are here. Who are we? Where did we come from? That's the fundamental, one of the fundamental questions of life. Theism is going to try to answer that. I want to call this uh, cosmological observations. I don't want to call it, those of you that have been around the block a few times in Christian life, I don't want to call it the cosmological argument because it's not an argument and I'm not trying to prove God's existence with this. I'm just trying to say, as I view the world through the lens of biblical theism, oh, I see this fits. And by the way, the worldview that wins is the worldview that best fits reality. There's a good line. The worldview that wins is the worldview that best, see, fits reality. So all of this is cumulative. I want to be able to look through the the lens of biblical theism, and I want to look at the world, and I want to say, okay, here's an observation I can make, the whole observation of cause and effect. Cosmological, just for the sake of completeness, cosmos, cosmos, how we should say it. I know we call it Cosmo, our favorite little Italian restaurant around the corner. Uh, is the Greek word, cosmos, is the Greek word for world, universe, created things, the cosmos, Sagan, the, the universe. And what we have to deal with and the problem that we have is that we're in desperate need of a cause. Because we exist, I mean, let's just think about it. The days we're doubting the reality of God, should I choose a biblical worldview, we've got to somehow define the cause And everyone's got this issue. 
I know that the National Academy of Sciences wants us to think that the world's got that figured out and we got it all figured out. But watch, as, as, uh, as John calls it, the high priest of, of Darwinism, of, of atheism, guys like Dawkins. Did you see that little movie exposed that De- Ben Stein did? When pressed about the issue of origins. Now, let me just go back. If you examine the concept of cause and effect uh, 75 years ago, and we're sitting in our little church in L.A. In, in, in the early 1900s. And you want to talk about cause and effect, okay? The options were that God caused the universe. Or you had the world's view without God. And that view was what we call uniformitarianism. And that is the world has always been here. That things stuff the elements. It's, it's gone on forever, And therefore, your choice was between an eternal God or eternal matter. Those were your choices. The rules have changed on a popular level now. We don't claim in in uniformitarianism anymore. We have a new view of of reality uh, uh, that that, that the world had a beginning, right? Pick up your kids' textbooks. The world had a start. And so now we're stuck with a world... Uh, through understanding entropy, through uh, catastrophism, through looking at the realities of what we're dealing with as an effect, we say, well, it had a cause, and it's not infinite, it's finite, and it had a beginning, and it had a start. And you can work through, if you studied, you know, uh, uh, astrophysicists and, and the writings of, of redshift and the universe had a beginning and all this other stuff, you, you recognize that, that we have the same problem. Dawkins, when pressed... And any good atheist, any philosopher is still going to have to say, well, there's something behind there, but I can't get confused with all that because I know there was a beginning, but the cause is mysterious and unknown. Ask any honest philosopher, ask any honest uh, biologist, ask any honest person who doesn't believe in God. They still believe in a temporal universe and some beginning, but we can't really discuss that because we, it's too mysterious. So we're still lacking this. Either we have, as now we're back to the Middle Ages, as Thomas Aquinas taught, an unmoved mover, or we have mover question mark. (laughs) And, And I'm not saying this is going to prove anything. All I'm saying is the biblical lens of theism is there is a God who is unmoved and by definition is uncreated and created the world. And the biblical worldview hasn't changed. As Robert Jastrow said, the views are always changing. And his poetic way to say it, eventually everyone will come around and scale the last rock of all of our, you know, philosophical, biological, uh, astronomical learning. And we'll get, we'll pull ourselves up to the precipice and find a band of theologians who have been there for centuries. Because the reality is, if we stick with the biblical worldview... We'll watch the changing, shifting views of the world, and eventually, at least it's moving in that direction now, we're getting to a place where we recognize, wow, you know, the, the biblical worldview answers a lot of questions we don't have answers for. Matter of fact, there are more questions today about the naturalistic worldview than ever before, even though they would lead you to believe there's less. We'll talk about that. Cosmological observations is that we as Christians look at the effect of the universe and say we understand the biblical worldview is that it has a cause. 
And the cause is by definition the self-existing eternal sovereign triunity that we know of in scripture as Yahweh. Now, Hebrews 3, I didn't print this one up for you, so let's take a quick peek at this, and not that you need it. I mean, you know this passage. And it's, it, whenever you see statements like this in scripture, much like any argument for the, for the, for the existence of God, it's assumed this isn't even the argument. This is just an illustration for something different. But we find a great statement about the simplicity of the cause and effect cosmological observations that a biblicist brings to looking at the world. And we say, well, yeah, there it is, nicely and compactly stated in Hebrews 3, verses 3 and 4. Jesus, Hebrews 3, 3, has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses. That's the real point of this passage. Just as the builder of a house has greater honor uh, than the house itself. See, the biblical view is that the cause is larger, stronger, wiser, smarter than the effect. So any study of the effect will see something bigger or greater that, that made it. Then the logic, verse 4, every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. He is the cause that made the effect. Biblical theism, that's simple stuff. The Bible demonstrates this, by the way, consistently with 86 examples of divine cause and effect. Something out of nothing. If you study the Bible, do the count. I've done it myself. Go start at the beginning, go all the way to the end, and just count God's creative, miraculous work. There are 86 examples of God doing something, creating something out of nothing, And these are pictures pointing to the creator. Jesus tried to prove his position as the means and agency of creation by continuing to create things out of nothing. So this isn't just, oh yeah, the Bible claims a unique event. It claims that that supernatural event was affirmed when God needed to put his imprimatur on his teaching or his work or his redemption by doing it again in some form, either through the prophets, through Moses in Egypt, or through the apostles in Christ in the New Testament. There are 86 biblical examples of God in engaging in supernatural creative acts. That's a different sermon. Oh, by the way, that's a different sermon. What are those little boxes there? You understand, Do you know what those are? Just jot up above the boxes here in the box column, uh, fpr.info. That's the short URL, fpr.info. Everything on our Focal Point radio site is absolutely free. You can download the worksheets and you can stream the sermons. All of these need an entire hour to deal with, so I put an hour of pre- teaching of each one of these. Obviously, I didn't do them for this message, but I've done them in the past. And so if you just go into the search box and you type in 0713, you'll get a message about the concept of cause and effect in God's creative work. And the next one here, 0565, and right on down the line. Yes, Norm Geisler's book on what? The cause and effect argument, yeah. The uncaused cause, it's, I mean, if, if you want to, well, whatever. Nobody thought this through more, and I know it was in a medieval way, but that was the height of scholasticism, than, than Thomas Aquinas. And from there, everybody else has been trying to, to repackage and, and, and do it in a more modern way. Yeah, but Norm Geisler, uh, yeah, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. I didn't read that particular book, but uh, deals with cause and effect according to John. Not John the Apostle, John Goodrich. 
<laughs> so that is not infallible. Letter B. Secondarily, just to put some of these things that may be floating out there in your minds into some kind of grid in our discussion here. Letter B, biblical theism and perceived reality. I can see then and observe a designer that now starts to explain the design, design and designer. This is what the whole ID uh, intelligent design movement is, is all about, that, that, that information doesn't derive from chaos, that organized useful information comes from a, a creator. We call this uh, teleological observations. And if you do any reading on the existence of God, or I'm sure uh, Geisler's book on atheism, um, and I just started reading uh, Al Mohler's book, uh, Atheism Remixed, if you want to put a few more titles down, uh, which is a great book, uh, at least the part that I read so far, uh, Atheism Remixed by Al Mohler, president of Southern Seminary. What a thinker that guy is. Uh, Anyway. Teleological. Yeah, let's define these just for completeness. Teleos. I talk a lot about teleos in my preaching because it's an interesting word. I know it's translated sometimes perfect, right? Be teleos as your Father in heaven is teleos, right? Be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. Well, we don't sometimes understand that because teleos is, um, I I prefer the translation just right, which no one's ever going to use. But uh, the concept is, and, and if you've heard me preach on this, it's the ah, oh, just right. Teleos is that it's just what it ought to be. And by the way, you can be sons of the Most High when you do something that is just right. Oh, you, you met the need of the moment. When you speak in a way to meet the need of the moment, where your speech is seasoned with salt, you can be teleos in a, in a conversation. Teleos, just right. When you look at the world, whether you're Denton or whoever, a microbiologist or whatever you might be, and you observe things in, in, in the creative order that are just right, you go, oh, that's just right. Well, you need that just right. Even in, in, in cosmology, we need a moon that does exactly what the moon does. And, and just to have that moon, it's just right. And I quote this all the time, but the sun is 600 times further than the moon, and the moon is also 600 times smaller than the sun. Therefore, they appear just the same size, greater light, lesser light. They're just right. That's teleos, right? We're not saying perfect in that, hey, there's no craters on the moon. And we're not saying that there's not corruption in the world and thorns in the garden, because God explains all that for it's got its context. But we're saying the world is made with things that are just right. They're teleos. I know we call that design, but that's really not what the word means. Let's put it this way. My kids now, my preteen boys, they like to use this phrase, random. Wow, that was random. Do your kids do that? Where do they get this from, right? <laughs> that was really random, man. When they see something weird, I'm just catching on to this now because I got an t- 11 and 10-year-old. That was really random. And, and they say that all the time about weird stuff, right? And I think to myself... Uh, you're not going to be saying that when you fall in love uh, with that teenage girl in high school. Boy, that ain't going to be random, right? Now we replace that with words like amazing, perfect, incredible, exquisite. I don't know. They won't use that word probably, but right? (laughs) Think about that. When they fall in love with that girl and they stare at the kneecap for an hour, Oh, she's perfect. Think about it, right? And the kneecap's pretty cool, right? It works great. You could have all kinds of joints, but the knee, God created a beautiful joint there, didn't he? 
you know, yours may not be as beautiful as they were when you were 16, but think about it, right? My kids are going to not use the random vocabulary there. They're going to start using these superlatives about perfection. Oh, man, she's amazing, Dad. See, where's that? Where's, what's that all about? Because beauty, symmetry, right? Things that are just right, teleos, they speak to something that is not chaotic, haphazard, or random. And that's the point of the teleological argument, or in my case, the teleological observations. I expect through a lens of a worldview, a biblical theistic worldview, to look at the world and find things that are just right, because there is a God who has intelligently designed this world, because that's what the Bible teaches. Not accidental, not haphazard, not random, not chaotic. Which, by the way, is all you're left with as an atheist, a rationalist, or or a naturalist. Or even those that are relativists, who a lot of them are still believing in a non-God origin view of the the universe. That the beautiful kneecap of a 16-year-old girl that my son falls in love with is the product of a random, haphazard, chaotic chance. That's the view. Now, you come up with amazing structures of philosophical argument to support that, but that is what you're left with. But a biblical worldview says, no, there's a God that creates things the way that he does that are teleos. They're just right. They're perfectly designed. Which, by the way, let's turn to this passage, Psalm 19. You know this passage. We could turn to several. Which, by the way, is the reason I put next to that 0565 because I spent a whole sermon talking about these kinds of things if you want to go further. And they're all free. Did I mention that? Just put, put the number in, 0565, and bam, up will come the message with the worksheet. You can download it on your MP. Oh, by the way, sidebar, those young whippersnappers in the teenage group, uh, they beat us to this, but we find the old fogies, got it, we're on it now. You got iTunes on your, uh, on your computers, right? Yes? I what? Okay, that's, then it's not for you. 90% of you, iTunes, you have iTunes, right? Even you Windows people use iTunes, right? Go to the iTunes store, is that what it's called? Okay, go into the search window and type in Compass Bible Church. Would you do that tonight, tomorrow? You can not only get all the young whippersnapper sermons from the youth department, but now you can get what we're doing on the weekends and you'll be able to get what you're getting here automatically downloaded to your iPod. Just, just become a subscriber to that. Oh, and by the way, put a review. Uh, only good reviews for now. <laughs> just start with good reviews. There'll be plenty of bad reviews, I'm sure, coming. But, uh, but if you like what you're, you're hearing there and want to encourage other people to go to... I, just Yeah, do, don't forget that, okay? iTunes, search Compass Bible Church, and uh, you'll find a few of our ministries there. And now ours is finally on there as of like two weeks ago or three weeks ago. So that's good. Free. I mentioned that, right? Absolutely free. You turn to to Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. No, that's not right. Verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. That's the teleological argument or observation right there. They display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Every people group gets to hear this. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, he's pitched a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming forth from his pavilion, pavilion like a champion rejoicing to run its course. 
It rises to one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. If we were any further away, we'd freeze. Any closer, we'd fry. It's teleos. It's teleos. By the way, if you're into the whole ID movement, the whole intelligent design thing, please be aware of this. Now, good ID guys, though I don't agree with a lot of what they teach, uh, they're not going to fall to this, but pop readers of it will. They start to paint the picture of the God of the gaps, which means that God is the God of the stuff that we can't explain. That's not what any good ID guy is teaching, and that's certainly not what I'm saying in the teleological observations. In other words, God is not the God of the stuff we can't explain. Now, I know it sounds that way because we're saying, well, Denton and guys like that are out there writing about the fact that, hey, we, the chaos, the information doesn't happen. We can't explain that. It's God. That's not how really the argument works because that would relegate God to the gaps, and that's not at all what the Bible teaches. What needs an explanation is not the gaps. What needs an explanation is the whole kit and caboodle. I haven't used that phrase for a long time. The whole kit and caboodle, the whole thing. See, that there is beauty, order, intelligence, design in the universe. That's the point. But it's not the God of the gaps. Now, some people view the ID movement, intelligent design movement that way. Well, we didn't understand lightning back then, and, and so we just, oh, God is striking the planet. And now we understand it, so that's not God, but we still don't understand childbirth, so that must be God. Oh, now we understand that. No, oh, but we still don't understand Heisenberg's principle of uncertainty and the randomness of, of, of quarks. We don't understand that. So that's God. That's not, that's not it, see, the God of the gaps. I don't believe that God is the God of the gaps. God is the God of the whole thing. What necessitates explanation is the whole thing. And the whole thing, I think, from the biblical worldview, a designer who explains the design certainly makes biblical sense. You're in Psalm 19. Let's read the next verse. As long as we're here, and this isn't in any kind of theological order, but it's the order of this text, so we'll use it. Verse 7, the law of the Lord. Now we move from the creative thing to this thing called the Bible. The law, the Torah, is perfect, reviving the soul. This is not a man book. This is a God book. The statutes of Yahweh are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of Yahweh are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the, of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of Yahweh is pure, enduring forever. The ordinance of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They're more precious than gold, than pure gold, sweeter than honey, honey from the comb. By them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. This book now is praised. Verses 1 through 6, the creation is a sign of God. Now, let's put it this way. Uh, God of the gaps already there. No, letter C, um, we now have an all-knowing author who explains the Bible. It gives explanation. It explicates the Bible. I get it now. We got a book I can't explain, and it's not that we're looking for a God of the gaps, but the biblical lens of the worldview is that, hey, God knows everything, and he wrote a book, and that book bears the marks of the eternal all-knowing God. The all-knowing author who explains the Bible. You've got to deal with the Bible. I know people don't want to, and they're university professors teaching your kids every week that, that it's a junk book. Most of them have never read it, by the way. Uh, and they f tell you it's, every, it's full of contradictions. These mysterious contradictions, they never pull out and illustrate. But the point is, we've got to deal with the book primarily because of its nature. But let's put a couple things down. The first word that's important is prophetic the prophetic scriptural observations. I look at the world and I go, wow, the designer 
explains the design. I look at the Bible and I say the author that is described of the Bible explains the nature of the book because the book is unique primarily because it is prophetic. Keep your finger here because I'm going to come back to Psalm 19 and I would like you to turn, if you would, to the next passage. And my clicker's dead. See, in the olden days, sermons didn't stop because clickers died, but today we're contingent on clickers. Psalm 19. No, let's not go there yet. Let's go here. No, we already went there. Yeah, let's go here now. Isaiah 44. Keep your finger in Psalm 19 because I'll come back to it. But Isaiah chapter 44. We already read this, didn't we? Well, let's read it again. Because you didn't turn there. I put it on the screen and that's not fair. It's half credit. Verse 6. This is what Yahweh says. Isaiah 44, 6. Israel's king and redeemer, Yahweh Almighty, which is literally the, uh, the, the, the Yahweh of hosts, of the, of, the, of the armies of heaven. I am the first and the last. Apart from me, there is no God. Who then is like me? Which, by the way, is the Hebrew word uh, Mikael, Michael. I like that name. Let him proclaim it, God says. Let him declare and lay out before me what has happened since I established my ancient people. And you're saying, well, we can do that. We'll try. People write history, you know. Oh, wait a minute, this is harder. And what is yet to come? Yes, God says, that's it. You guys can't do that, can you? Let him foretell what is to come. Now, the amazing thing about the Bible, and by the way, I gave you another sermon on this one, 0818 there. Just pop that into fpr.info, focalpointradio.org. And we talk about predictive prophecy. God calls things with specificity before they ever happen long before they ever happen, sometimes a generation before they happen, sometimes in the case of the Messiah, of the Messiah four or five, six hundred years before they happen. And he calls them out with specificity. And God, when he does that, proves, wow, he can tell the future. Can't tell the future with any specificity without being a God who knows the future. And that's what the Bible teaches. Wow. What time am I supposed to be done? Before the congregation quits. That's what I've always been taught. When, right? That's what my old pastor said. Quit before they do. That's all you got to remember, Pastor Mike. Am I supposed to quit now? Does anybody know? Eight what? Eight fifteen. Wow, that's an eternity. All kinds of time. That came directly from Susan, so I know. I ain't going to get busted if Susan said it. Yeah, there you go. 80-minute CD. Thank you. Yes, they don't. <laughs> they kind of poop out after that, don't they? I've gone over, haven't I? Oh, many times. It's because of comments like this that keep it going longer than it should. Not yours, mine. Okay, uh, I don't even know where I'm at. Human authors cannot explain the content of the Bible specifically, and though you could argue some of the subjective things in, in Psalm 19, the objective things like predictive prophecy, hastening on, letter D. We have a lawgiver with a biblical theistic worldview that explains morality. The Bible explains this thing called morality, and we have to really make haste here. Moral observations. We can make moral... This is often called, you, you Bible students or, or Sunday school grads, uh, moral, the moral argument or the argument from conscience. There is an observation about reality that there is a God who has given us rules to live by. I said to keep your finger in Psalm 19. Did you do that? Turn back there now. Verse 12. Psalm 19, verse 12. Who can discern a person's errors? Forgive my, my hidden faults. 
Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I'll be blameless, innocent of great transgressions. May the words of my mouth, now here's the part that's secret, no one will ever see it, and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O God, my rock and my redeemer. There is a universal experience of guilt when there is transgression of moral law, when it's known or when it's not known. Try it. Go do something heinous that no one knows about. You'll feel bad. And the question is, where did that come from? And then you say, well, that's cultural. Well, really, it's not. There is, and here's a good book to jot down, uh, The Origin of Religion by Samuel Zwimmer. This is an old study. It was a 50-year anthropological study of societies and tribes and people groups around the world. And the amazing result is that there is consistency in a moral standard. It is wrong in every culture to do certain things that the Bible clearly expresses. Now, you can argue chicken or the egg. I understand that. But the point is, from a biblical worldview, we're saying the biblical lawgiver explains the conviction of sin. It explains the issue of guilt. Turn with me to another passage, Romans chapter 2. We're done with uh, Psalm 19 for now. So you can pull your flattened finger out of that passage. And go to Romans chapter 2. The presence of universal ta- of taboos. Stealing your neighbor's pig, hog, donkey, iguana, whatever it might be. It, it's wrong in every culture. It's not yours. Romans chapter 2 verse 1. You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. The point is we all can stand back, watch something go down that's wrong and judge it fairly and consistently in someone else's life. And the point is... At whatever point you judge the other, you're condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. There is a standard and we know it. Verse 2, we know that God's judgment is against those who do such things and it's based on truth. In other words, there is an objective, otherly, propositional rule that comes from the lawgiver that we interface with every day. Well, that's because we went to Sabbath school. We're good Jews, right? No, drop down to verse 14. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature or intuitively things required by the law, they are for themselves, even though they do not have the law, a law for themselves. Since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. By the way, all of this, the whole chapter here, is going to take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets, things that people never see, through Jesus Christ as my my gospel declares. You can go into any tribe, any people group, and talk about the secret violations of your conscience in your heart, and you will have people convicted. And they don't have to grow up in the same family, same parents, same schools, same, you know, ethical learning and preschool, none of that. And the point is that a biblical theistic worldview explains the issue of morality. The world has to come up with another explanation for that, and there are several options. But the biblical worldview, in concert with the rest of this, becomes increasingly significant and a a view to contend for and one that contends with our, our minds. Letter E, a God who explains the God concept. Oh, wow. <clears throat> we call this depending on what kind of theological bent you come from, either an anthropological observation or some reform circles call it the observations of intuition. 
this gets a little heady, and there's two parts to this, okay? The first part basically takes a step further the concept I was just talking about, which is the issue of a God concept that is prevalent whether you teach it or not. It's amazing. It was great being a parent because you learn this when you, these kids come into the world. There's a lot of things you, you've got to explain to them and they don't get. But you know, God is not one of them. Oh, there may be parts of God that they want, they want to have answered, right? There's questions about God that are tough. But the concept of God, it's intuitive. Well, that's because they were in church week one. They're the pastor's kids. No, check this out. It's true universally. Even atheism at its peak in America. Think about it. More books written about atheism today than ever before. The word atheism wasn't even in the English language, by the way, until the 16th century. Even today, with atheism so prominent, only about 10% of the people in America are atheists. And we're trying to lead the pack in this view. I mean, uh, in the world. And then, if you want to talk about this, you want to talk about people being embarrassed uh, to say they're atheists. I don't think that's the case. I think it's just the opposite. It is cool to say you're an atheist because here's some polls. This is from a Barna poll in October of 2003. 50% of the atheists, self-proclaimed atheists, believe that there's a heaven and a hell. Do you see the self-contradictory? The point is, it's cool to say I'm an atheist, but really, you know, if you're going to press me, I do believe there's a heaven and a hell. Worse, yes, 13% of that group says, hey, if you would accept Christ, uh, you can be sure you'll go to heaven. What? These are atheists, okay? What I'm saying is the truth of Romans chapter 1, and that is people suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. And even claiming a view of atheism, it is the counterintuitive view. That's what I'm trying to say. The intuitive view is there is a God. That's why the Bible doesn't spend a lot of time trying to prove the existence of God, because it's never been a majority view. And according to Scripture, you may work hard to do it, and God may turn you over to certain levels of ignorance about God, but it will always be the secondary view, because you have to work to get there. I'm not saying we seek after the God of the Bible, but the anthropological observation of, of theism is a reality. Now, I don't want to get too far into this. We're still here on letter E, right? Second half of this, we call the ontological observations. Only the mathematicians and philosophers among us will appreciate any of this. Ontos, it's the participial form of the Greek verb to be, or being would be the participial form. The participle, being, existence, to exist, to be. Anselm, (laughs) good old Archbishop Anselm, had a lot of time, no TV, no XM radio, and he spent a lot of time thinking this stuff through. <laughs> and because he was a philosopher at heart, he came up with what we call in classic theology the ontological argument, okay? Now, it's a philosophical, better yet, it's, it's a metaphysical reasoning, metaphysics. It has to do with, with things about possibility, actuality, and necessity. You philosophers love those kinds of discussions, right? Reasoning about metaphysical realities, okay? It is purely a philosophical argument, right? It's an a posteriori argument. It's an argument of, of philosophy and, 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 and propositions, okay? That's why it doesn't appeal to the man on the street, okay? But just for completeness, and I know we're almost out of time here, here's how it goes. Don't write this down. You won't have time for this, okay? 
and I know this sounds stupid, I found an entire atheistic website with like 250 jokes based on the ontological argument. And they were hilarious, actually. Uh, but it showed me the ignorance of the people who put the website together because you don't understand the ontological argument, okay? I know it sounds silly, but the philosophers and mathematicians among us may uh, connect with this, and you've probably already read it if you are one of those. It's possible, f- if it is possible, here's the premise that's debated, by the way, for an absolutely perfect being to exist, and that's where most of the debate lies. But once you concede that premise, if it's possible for a maximally, that's how the philosophers put it, perfect being to exist, then he exists in some possible world. They call it an it in the, prem- in the premises of this argument. Okay? If in some possible world that perfect God exists, because it surely would exist in a possible world, then he exists in every world because he's maximally perfect. He has to exist in all worlds because he's perfect. Because, by the way, this argument, I know they, they were hilarious. Like, if Eric Clapton exists, there must be a God. It was funny, the, the website. But the point is, this only works with the definition of God who is perfect. And those of you that know something about the ontological argument, you understand it only works with that philosophical concept. God is a unique concept. And because we conceive it, well, I'll simplify it in a minute, but if in a possible world, then in every world, because that's what a perfect, maximally perfect God would do. And if, every, if in every possible world, then in the actual world, because he'd have to exist in every world, including this world. Therefore, God exists in the actual world. And most people go, well, that's silly. It's really a tight philosophical argument if you are into believing the propositions of philosophy. It's a logically tenable argument. Nobody connects with it on the internet, but it seems. In short, here's the, here's the shortened version. If we, conceive of, if we can conceive of a perfect being, which of course the premise is that we can, okay, then existence is necessary in every possible world, including this one, of such a being. Therefore, that being exists. Now, again, I know, well, I can think of leprechauns. It doesn't work with anything else. It only works with the philosophical definition of a perfect being. And if that means nothing to you, just pretend we didn't say all that. (laughs) And you can read about it somewhere else. Now, I don't want to lead you astray. I don't really deal with the ontological argument uh, at length. Uh, What are we on? E? F? In 0425. Do you remember which one that was, Ruth? Any clue what that sermon was? Which one was it? Somebody's online right now. I see those laptops out there. Look that one up and shout out the title to me. It had some bearing on, on the anthropological observations of intuition, I think. So anyway, it's a sermon maybe worth looking at. F. So I really wanted to know what 0023 was all about. All right, supreme being who explains the supernatural. Now we're over time now, so here we go. Ready? This is all nonsensical. Just jot it down though. John 10, 37 to 38. There are things in the past that we have to explain and everyone's going to explain them somehow. Like uh, Immanuel Kant, they would say, for instance, if I'm a naturalist, all reports of miracles are false because there can be no miracles. Okay. Well, there can be no miracles. Obviously there are no miracles. Uh, But those of us that aren't going to say that through a lens of biblical theism are going to have to somehow deal with the reports of the miraculous, including, I think, the the grand poobah of them all, the granddaddy of them all, which is the resurrection of Christ. We got to deal with that. Okay. Did you write any of that down? Okay. Letter G, a present God who explains my experience. Now, again, this isn't an argument. 
What this is is an experiential observation, including all those other things, a cumulative argument here now. I'm looking at in my own life that, and I love this uh, Hebrew word, uh, um, uh, matzah. It's not matzah, but matzah. Um, it's the br- not unleavened bread, you Jewish people. Um, but the matzah means the, uh, the, the, the found God. You remember that psalm? He is my ever-present help in time of need. Therefore, I do not fear. Ever-present at matzah. He is the, f- the God that we find. And once I got on that little word study, I had to go to 2 Chronicles chapter 15, verses 1 through 4. With this, we'll close, but let's look at this one together. Two minutes to read it, and then, we'll, then we're on to pick up our kids and all those Awana workers that aren't happy with me right now. 2 Chronicles 15. First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. Big target back there. Second Chronicles 15. Asa. They're speaking some truth. The prophet speaking truth to Asa. Azariah is doing this. Look at verse 2. Went out to meet Asa. The prophet did. Said, listen to me, Asa, and all of Judah and Benjamin. Yahweh is with you when you are with him. Profound. If you seek him, he will be matzah. He will be found by you. He will be ever present by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. For a long time, Israel went without the true God, without priests to teach, without the law. But in their distress, they turned to Yahweh, the God of Israel, and sought him, and he was matzah, was found by them. Now, here's the tenet of biblical theism. God is real. He is ever-present. He is matzah. He, is a, he will allow you to find him. Now, he doesn't let you find him if you don't seek him, right? Those who seek him, find him. But if you've had an experience of the triune God being ever-present, being matzah, being findable, see, then you've got to explain that experience. And a lot of of your non-Christian neighbors and friends try to. Well, she's delusional, you know. She's praying and she thinks God's listening. But you and I still have to add that to our biblical worldview in that we look at our experience with the God. Has God ever been matzah in your life, the ever-present help in time of need? Something beyond what you experienced as a non-Christian? Another way for me to look at the reality of my experience with God. All right, I said I'd be done. Let's pray. God, help us as we begin this study. And I know now we're kind of going through the painful part of looking at non-Christian worldviews by and large and then trying to understand how we view the world. If I say we, certainly me and hopefully many others here. And I pray as we dive into the nature of God, the attributes of God, the names of God, and as we move further into our study of who you are, that you would help us and guide us. Thanks for this time. Please bless every single one of those Awana workers. And I pray that you'd repay them for their service to our children tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.